I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. And that's that's his amen. And then we go on to verse 6. <laughs> but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children, who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to His choice might stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Dear Father, You alone are sovereign over all things without exception. May we gain a greater understanding of that simple, powerful truth this morning. And may we better understand how blessed we are in Christ because it is true. We ask this in His precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Sorry, I missed that first uh, Scripture slide up there. One second. All right, I'm ready. You ready? When you were a child, was there ever a time when you questioned whether your parents were acting rightly or even lovingly toward you? If that never happened to you, then you were a very unusual child indeed. If your parents were wise and loving, and if they were committed to teaching you the things that would equip you for life, then there were no doubt many times when you did not understand how they uh, could possibly act toward you as they did. There were surely times when they didn't let you play with the things that you wanted to play with. There were times when they didn't let you... Uh, spend time with friends that you considered to be great people. There were times when they warned you about things that you didn't think required a warning at all. 
And there were no doubt times when they made you earn money to pay for something that your friend's parents just gave them. And I'm sure there were things that they made far more difficult for you than you thought that they should be. And they did this with a purpose. If your parents were in fact wise and loving as human parents go, then your occasional or even frequent frustration and confusion about how they chose to exercise their authority over you was probably tempered at least some by what you knew about them, by what you knew already about the quality of their intentions toward you and their love toward you. And as you became older and more mature, if you indeed did mature, then there no doubt came a time when you realized that many of the things that your parents did that you least understood actually ended up being things that were of greatest value to you in your life. You came to realize that the reason your parents saw some things so very differently than you did when you were young was because they, in reality, understood things that you had no way of understanding at the time. Is it possible that that same kind of misinterpretation could apply in the realm of God's justice? Is it possible that God could do something that strikes men as unjust without God being unjust at all? Is it possible that we, even as believers in Jesus Christ, might wrongly interpret certain actions by God as unjust entirely because of the limitation of our own understanding? Of course it is. In fact, because of the infinite gap between God and us that's due to His perfect holiness and our sinfulness, it's not only possible, it's inevitable. Job was certainly one who knew what it was like to be convinced at one point that God had acted unjustly toward him and his family. God authorized Satan to kill Job's family, to rob him of all his wealth, and to cover him with boils from head to toe. And God gave Satan a free hand to do those things, even though Job was, according to the very first verse of the book of Job, a man who was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. If any mortal man ever had cause to complain against God for what appeared to be injustice, Job did. But Job eventually came to the conclusion, the very determined conclusion, that God had acted in perfect righteousness and justice toward him in all that he had done. But beloved, what brought Job around to trust in the perfect justness of God was not that he became clearer about why God had done what he did. God never answered the why question for Job. Instead, it was because Job came to know more clearly who God is. And just as uh, 
is always the case when a man who belongs to God gets a really clear look at who God is? Job was humbled. And that humility produced in him a genuine sense of peace, of rest, and of acceptance of what God had done toward him, even in the midst of the worst of circumstances that most of us could imagine. And of course, uh, if you know the end of the story, you know that in his latter days, God blessed him more than at his beginning. And Job died an old man and full of days. Now in the passage that the Apostle Paul presents to us this morning, in fact, throughout the next three chapters of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, Paul is going to say things that we find exceedingly hard to understand and accept. Things that provoke in many believers a very real struggle over whether a just God could do the kinds of things that Paul says he has done. But in the final analysis, the question that Paul will set before us is this. Based on all that God has clearly revealed about Himself, particularly in His Son, about His own character, are we willing to humble ourselves to to truly trust in the righteousness and justness of God even when we do not fully understand why He has done some of that which He has done? Or to be more concise, is that which you do know about God sufficient for you to humbly accept that which you do not know and cannot yet know. Here's where we're going this morning. In verses 1 through 13, Paul is focusing on the idea of the children of the promise. In verses 1 through 5, Paul laments of the great sorrow and unceasing grief that he has for his fellow Israelites according to the flesh who have been excluded from Christ. And then in verses 6 to 8, Paul makes it clear that it is the children of the promise, not the children of the flesh, who are the true children of God. And in verses 9 to 13, Paul explains something about how the promise of God becomes applied to one man and not applied to another. In chapter 9, Paul is explaining more thoroughly the identity of those whom he has already called God's elect. He spoke in chapter 8, particularly verses 28 to 30 and verse 33, of those that he, that he referred to as, as God's elect. Those whom he said were foreknown by God before the foundations of the world, were predestined by God to become conformed to the image of His Son, and then were called justified, and glorified. And that group is the same from beginning to end, and it goes in that order. At the end of Romans 8, Paul spoke in very exalted terms about uh, the unwavering certainty that we have as God's elect that nothing in all of God's creation can ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. But Paul knew that some, that that, 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 that same glorious guarantee did not apply to those among his fellow Israelites 
who had rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah, as Savior. And so in these next three chapters, Paul turns his attention to those who are his kinsmen according to the flesh, to the Jews. And these chapters are crammed with powerful theology that explains a whole lot about what God has been doing both in the Gentile nations and in his people, Israel, ever since Israel's national rejection of Christ when Christ came to earth the first time and was crucified and was resurrected. And these chapters, I'm convinced, make it very, very clear that God is not finished with Israel yet. In verses 1 to 5, Paul begins with great emotion. He says that he has great sorrow and unceasing grief over the exclusion of his fellow Israelites from the marvelous union with Christ and from the love of God that he has just declared to be the glorious possession of all who are God's children. And then he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, I need to point out that godly and diligent scholars of God's Word have come to rather different conclusions about what Paul meant when he said, I I could wish that I myself would be accursed. Some uh, make a a large issue out of the the wording, I could wish, which in the Greek they understand uh, indicates that Paul knows it's not really possible that he would be accursed. And I agree with that. Uh, It is not possible for one who has been chosen and called out by God to be his child. Uh, It's not possible for that person to ever be condemned. But I don't believe that diminishes the force of what Paul is saying here. Some scholars also point out that the word accursed, the Greek anathema, in the way it's used in the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it often points to temporal judgment, judgment that occurs this side of heaven. And it doesn't necessarily mean eternal condemnation. Now, I believe that 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 assertion is correct. (laughs) But I still believe that the force of Paul's words is stronger than that. Uh, Douglas Moo and, and other writers present the case that Paul is indeed saying that if it were possible, he would be willing to be eternally consigned to hell if only his fellow Israelites could be saved. I have to say that I lean toward that latter understanding, but with great, great trepidation, just because I don't understand how a man could say that. And I don't find that I am able to say that. However you take Paul's words here, the reality is that salvation is not a zero-sum game. There are not a limited number of seats on the bus so that I can give mine up and someone else gets to take it. The reality is, as as Paul declares in Romans 10.13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But I believe it's imminently clear through Paul's words here, however you take them, that he agonizes, he agonizes over the spiritual condition of his fellow Israelites, and he would do anything within his power if they could only be turned to faith in Jesus Christ. 
May God bring to all of us that kind of consuming and self-denying love for the lost. In verses 4 and 5, Paul presents a picture of Israel's greatly favored status as the covenant sons of God. But then he proceeds to say some things about that status that the Jews will not uh, expect. Israel began with an amazing advantage. It was they whom God called out and adopted to be His people, His covenant sons, a royal priesthood and a holy nation in Exodus 19. It was they of whom God said to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. It was to them that God gave the law and the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices. It was they who received the covenant promises of God. All of the forefathers of the faith were from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even the disciples were from among the Israelites according to the flesh. Indeed, Paul points out that Messiah Himself, God come in the flesh, was a descendant of Israel according to the flesh. But while all these things were true for the Israelites according to the flesh, Paul declares that none of them ultimately matter if the sons of the flesh are not sons of God according to the promise. He already said in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And Paul already made it crystal clear in chapter 3 that Israel's possession of the law of Moses did not, in fact, give them any advantage over the Gentiles. If anything, it gave them a disadvantage. He made it clear that the law serves to condemn us all, both Jews and Gentiles, because we are all under sin and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. In chapter 3, verse 27, he explained that the only law that brings us into a righteous standing in the eyes of God is a law of faith. And then in verse 28, He said, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So, the failure of most Jews to believe in Jesus Christ left them condemned, accursed, separated from Jesus Christ. The very people who had received the direct and detailed revelation of God the people who had the greatest knowledge about God had no true relationship with God because the only way to be related to God is through Jesus Christ. And that's exactly where Paul goes next. Even as he lamented the exclusion of his fellow Israelites from the redeeming love of God, he understood that his words might make it seem that God's covenant promises to Israel had failed. That God had broken His promise. And so in typical fashion, Paul addresses that objection head on. He says in verse 6, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. 
For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now there are two occurrences of the word Israel in that verse 6. The second one does not refer to Israel as a place or as a race of people. It refers to Israel as a person. The man named Jacob. If you read Genesis 32, you see that when there was a, a time when Jacob was on his way back to the land of promise after spending a bunch of years with Laban. He had a wrestling match with God. <laughs> and God gave him a new name, and that name was Israel. And Paul is saying here that not all of those who descended physically from Jacob are actually Israelites in the eyes of God. He's saying there are some descendants of Jacob who are excluded from the promises that God made to Abraham. And he's saying that those who are excluded are not true Israelites at all. Now, if you were a Jew hearing or reading those words, you would have been shocked and you would have been angry. <laughs> the Jews firmly believed that they had a, uh, that, that every physical descendant of Jacob was an Israelite and had a special covenant relationship with God that was inviolable. They believed that unless you as an Israelite turned away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and followed some false pagan God, that you would always remain in that special covenant relationship. But in verse 7, Paul goes another level. And he says, not only does physical descent from Jacob not guarantee that you're a true Israelite, but physical descent from Abraham does not make you an heir of the promises that God gave to Abraham. And then he quotes Genesis 21.12, which says, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. Now, actually, if you take that one statement and in Romans 9-7, by itself, it would not be seen as inflammatory or controversial to a Jew because the Jews would heartily agree <laughs> that the covenant line did not come through Ishmael, it came through Isaac, right? They'd have no problem with that. But when you take verse 6 and verse 7 together, <laughs> the Jews have a very serious problem with what Paul is asserting because, again, they believe that every physical descendant of Jacob is a true Israelite and a true child of promise. So they would take this as blasphemy. But of course, Paul is not the first one to speak in these sorts of terms, is he? In John chapter 8, when the Jewish leaders confronted Jesus as they were prone to do, Jesus told them that contrary to their own pious proclamation, they were not children of Abraham. In fact, he told them they were children of the devil because they had rejected the very Messiah for whom Abraham had been watching and waiting. So Paul's not alone in what he's saying here about what makes a man a true son of Abraham and child of promise. Verse 8, Paul goes on to further explain what he's just declared. And he says, that is, 
It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Now, I believe Paul is still focused on the Jews here in verse 8. He's still clarifying which of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are indeed children of God and the true seed of Abraham, and which from that same group are not. But his statement in verse 8 also sets the stage for what he's going to say a little later in this chapter. And that is that God is calling Gentiles as well as Jews into the promise that he made to Abraham and into that identity as children of God. Now I want to take a, a few moments to clarify something here from my perspective. And you can take, take this or leave it. There are many who take Paul's words in verses 6 to 8 to mean that when he talks about the real Israel as opposed to physical Israel, he's including both Jewish and Gentile believers under that designation Israelites. Many who take that position believe that the church has replaced Israel, in effect. That the church has assumed the identity of Israel with regard to the fulfillment of the covenant promises of God. In other words, those who hold that position believe that Israel, as we knew it in the Old Testament, no longer plays a part in God's plan of redemption. That the church which everyone agrees includes both Jews and Gentiles, is exactly synonymous with the new Israel, the true Israel, the Israel of God. Now, while the Scriptures in both Testaments absolutely make it clear that God is calling both Jews and Gentiles to be His children, I do not believe that Paul is including Gentiles under the name Israelites. And I do not believe that the church has replaced Israel in God's plans. Indeed, I believe that we're going to see very clearly in chapter 11 that God is not finished with Israel yet. Uh, and He's going to juxtapose what He's doing with the Israelites against what He's been doing with the Gentiles. I think there uh, continues to be a very important distinction between Gentile believers and Jewish believers. Now, some may say, but what about Galatians 3 that says, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man, male nor female, for we are all one in Him. And my response to that would be, I hope you're not saying that God, still, that God believes there's no difference between a man and a woman. See, there is a sense in which God recognizes distinctions and there's a sense in which there is no distinction. When it comes to our relationship with God in Jesus Christ, there's no difference between Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free man. But when it comes to the unfolding of God's plan of redemption, I believe a distinction abides between those who are Israelites and those who are Gentiles. Enough said about that. Again, many people whom I love and respect would disagree with me on that point. That's absolutely fine. Um, I believe when you get when we get into the, these three chapters, especially when we get down toward uh, chapter eleven, uh, we're going to see that again that God has some things going on with Israel that are that are uh, quite amazing uh, as far as what's going to happen in the future. All right, now. I said enough said, but I want to give you a little chart that at least explains how I understand this, and then we'll proceed. Uh, 
You can thank Mr. Venn for this. He created the Venn diagram. Long time ago. Uh, in Romans 9, verse 8, Paul makes the distinction between the children of the flesh and the children of the promise. The identity of the children of the flesh is, I believe, pretty straightforward and no one disputes it. The children of the flesh are all the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That includes all Jews by birth, both those who were chosen and called by God to be children of the promise and those who are excluded from the promises of God because of unbelief. I believe the group that Paul refers to as children of the flesh does not include Gentiles, and I think most would agree with that. But the children of the promise, those whom God calls his true children, includes God's elect, both from among the Jews and from among the Gentiles. It includes all of those who have been chosen and called by God from among both those groups. Again, I don't think we have a dispute uh, any controversy there. Verse 24, which we'll see in context next time, explicitly says God called some not only from among Jews only, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Now, what I do believe is that the that blue area in the middle that makes up the church includes both Jews and Gentiles, but that there is still a distinction in God's plan of redemption between those two groups. All right, press on. While I'll leave that slide up, I also want to point out something about how Paul addresses the role of faith in this passage. While there's no question that faith is a constant in all of that Paul says regarding God's redemption and in all that the Bible says about redemption, Paul's focus in this part of Romans 9 is not on faith. It's on God's choosing. In short, Paul's focus here is not on our response of faith. It is on God's sovereign action that brings about that response. It is on His choosing that makes us the recipients of His promise. In fact, the words believe or faith don't even show up in Romans 9 until the very end when you get to the last little section that starts in verse 30. In other passages, there's there's one other passage in the New Testament that very closely parallels Romans 9, and that's Galatians 3. Many of the same ideas are in both. In both passages, Paul carefully distinguishes between the true descendants or sons of Abraham and those who are merely physical descendants. And in both chapters, he has a whole lot to say about the promise. In Galatians 3, Paul leaves no question what it is that makes a person a true child of Abraham and a son of God. Look at how many times in these four verses Christ is mentioned. He says, for you are all sons of God. How? Through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So who are the children of the promise? those who have been baptized into Christ, clothed with Christ, made one in Christ, and those who belong to Christ. (laughs) 
It's all about Christ. Whether Jew or Gentile by birth, your relationship to the promises of God and to God Himself is entirely a function of your relationship to Jesus Christ. Paul could not be clearer. He goes on in verses 9 to 13 to lay out for us how God's promises become applied to some men and not to others. And this gets very interesting. (laughs) I believe he's addressing a very straightforward question in these verses, and that is, how is it that one physical descendant of Abraham becomes a child of the promise and thus a true child of God and another does not? And then he's going to take that and extrapolate it not just to the physical descendants of Abraham, but to all men. Paul does not mince words here, and he does not present things the way our logic would have them. He does not explain our relationship to God and to the promise of God in a man-centered fashion in any sense. His explanation is 100% God-centered. He starts Romans 9, verse 9. He says, For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Now the statement, this is a word of promise, means just that. It means God is making a promise. And then he quotes a verse that's a little summary of what the angel of Yahweh said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, verse 10. And that is, I will surely return to you at this time next year and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. It's very important when you look back at that passage in Genesis 18 to recognize that the very next thing that's said after that promise is that Sarah was old, advanced in age, indeed that she was, quote, past the manner of women. That meant she was postmenopausal and she was physically unable to bear a child. And so Sarah, listening at the door of her tent to this conversation between the angel of Yahweh and her husband, laughed to herself when she heard God say that the covenant son was going to come through her. And her laughter was not laughter of joy. It was laughter of mockery. It was laughter of disbelief. Sarah was not alone in her incredulous response to the incredible promise of God because just the chapter before this, God told Abraham that the covenant son, Isaac, God named him, was going to come through Abraham's wife, Sarah. And according to Genesis 17, 17, when Abraham heard that, he fell on his face and he laughed. And he said in his heart, will a child be born to a man a hundred years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? (laughs) And because Abraham considered such a thing to be impossible even for God, he pleaded with God to take his firstborn son Ishmael, and let him be the one through whom the covenant promises would be fulfilled. But Ishmael was Abraham's contrivance, not God's. Maybe more Sarah's contrivance. (laughs) Now all that backstory is important because it plays very directly into Paul's central point here in Romans 9. Because Paul is setting before us the heart of God's answer to the question, what is it that makes a person a true child of God and a child of the promise? And the answer has nothing to do with the person and everything to do 
with God's choice. God did not choose Abraham or Sarah because of their great response to His promises. He chose them in spite of their lousy response to His promises. And He chose Isaac before Isaac was even a gleam in his father's eye. By the way, it's certainly no coincidence that the name God gave to Isaac before he was ever born or conceived means he laughs. (laughs) God memorialized Abraham and Sarah's unbelief and his faithfulness to keep the promises that he makes. And when Isaac was born, the word laughter comes up again and now Sarah is laughing joy. And it's only and purely because God does what He chooses to do. Verses 10 to 13, again, Paul leaves no room for doubt about the intent of his words. He moves from the story of God's choice of Isaac over Ishmael to the next generation, to the story of God's choice of Jacob over Esau. And he says that while Jacob and Esau were still in their mother's womb, before either of them ever had an opportunity to do either good or bad, indeed, before either of them ever had an opportunity to exercise faith in the promise of God, God chose Jacob over Esau. And he told Rebekah, their mother, the older will serve, the older Esau will serve the younger Jacob. And at that point, While the two twins were still in the womb, God made a permanent distinction between Jacob and Esau. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now lest we be inclined to water down that Esau I hated part, it serves us well to look back at the Old Testament and to see what God says will be the destiny of Esau's descendants. If you look through the end time prophecies, particularly in Isaiah and Jeremiah, you'll see that Many Gentile nations will be brought to God. They will be redeemed. They will be brought to faith at a national level when God accomplishes the national redemption of Israel. He's going to talk about later in chapter 11. And God includes in the redemption of nations the salvation of some nations that harshly opposed and even enslaved Israel. That includes Egypt and Assyria. But Edom, the descendants who came from Jacob's brother Esau, will not experience a national redemption. Indeed, except for an apparently small remnant of Edom that Amos refers to in Amos 9.12, the descendants of Esau are identified throughout the prophets as the objects of God's fierce and destructive wrath. Indeed, there are some passages in which Edom seems to be presented as representing all of the rebellious nations that God has devoted to destruction, literally put under the ban. That means they are, they are destined to be the objects of the very worst of God's uncompromising, wrathful, destructive judgment. When God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, the entire Bible corroborates the full force of that declaration. Verse 11 is exceedingly direct. God's choosing and calling is the only active agent here. Not anything that Jacob or Esau did. 
It says that God chose Jacob and excluded Esau while they were still in their mother's womb, and it gives a purpose clause. In order that God's purpose according to His choice might stand. Paul is saying as clearly as words allowed that the only thing that accounted for the distinction that God made between Jacob and Esau was God's own choice. Period. Now, we don't care for that logic very much, do we? It doesn't fit our conception of justice. There are two elements that we in our mortal condition consider to be indispensable to the definition of justice. And those two elements are merit and fairness. The merit part actually is pretty easy to reconcile with Scripture. If God actually gave us all what the Bible says we all deserve what we've earned, then we'd all be spending eternity in hell, right? That applies to every man who has ever lived and to every man who ever will live. Paul made that case uncompromisingly in the first three chapters of Romans. And if you're here today and you do not believe that hell is what you deserve, right along with all the rest of us, then I do not believe that you are a Christian. Because that declaration about our condition, our lost condition, is fundamental to the gospel. So, with regard to the merit aspect of justice, to getting what we deserve, the reality is simply that God would be perfectly just in sending us all to hell. The second element that we consider indispensable to justice is where things get problematic. Because the second element is fairness, or more to the point, equity. We think that if all men deserve the same thing, then whatever God does to one man, whether good or bad, He is obligated to do to every other man. And we believe that if God instead chooses to do good to one and bad to another, that that makes Him unjust. But whether we like it or not, that's exactly what God says. He does. And he says that it does not contradict his perfect justness even a little. He alone chooses to richly bless some by making them the objects of his covenant promises, and he alone chooses to exclude others from those same blessings. Now, it's important to note that Paul does not say that God's choice is based on man's faith. Is faith required in order for a man to be justified, declared righteous in the eyes of God? Absolutely. No possible way to argue against that if you're paying attention to Paul. He already made it infinitely clear that you and I who belong to Christ have been justified the same way Abraham was justified. And God said Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But as we already saw in Romans 8 verses 29 to 30, justification comes after Calling. And calling comes after foreknowledge and predestination. I didn't make it up. Our faith is the result of God's calling, not the cause of God's calling. It is God's gracious choosing and calling alone that determines our relationship to His covenant promises and thus our relationship to God Himself. Now since I believe Paul is going to be very direct as he expands on and defends that understanding in the rest of this passage, 
that we'll look at next week in verses 14 to 29. I'm going to wait until then to dive into that any further. And I'm going to ask you to bear with me in all of this. If this doesn't sit well with you yet, please don't let this be the end of your consideration of what Paul is saying about the priority of God's choice. He's also going to have a whole lot more to say about God's gracious plans for Israel. So don't take today's passage as the end of the story with regard to that very important matter. Here, in verses 1-13, to Paul is simply presenting the fact that God's choice is that which determines whether a man is a child of the covenant promises of Abraham and a child of God, or whether he is not. In closing, I just want to take our thoughts back to Job for a moment. If you're familiar with the book of Job, you know that Job had four friends who graciously offered their counsel to him as he struggled mightily to understand why God had dealt with him and his family as he did. And in the end, God declared that three of those friends had not spoken rightly about God. But there was a fourth one, the youngest. His name was Elihu. And he said some things that were very, very right about God. Toward the end of the book, Elihu spoke of how God's absolute sovereignty over His creation brings men to humbly fear Him. And I want to share with you a couple of portions of chapter 37, the words of Elihu. Pay attention to the idea of God's sovereign choosing in this passage. It says, out of the south comes the storm and out of the north the cold. From the breath of God ice is made and the expanse of the waters is frozen. Also with moisture he loads the thick cloud. He disperses the cloud of his lightning. And it changes direction, turning around by his guidance that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth whether for correction or for His world or for loving kindness, He causes it to happen. And a few verses later, out of the north comes golden splendor. Around God is awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is exalted in power. And get this, He will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. Therefore, men fear Him. He does not regard any who are wise of heart. (laughs) There were many things that were not clear to Job regarding how God chose to act toward him and his family. But what became infinitely clear to him was that the very nature of God demanded one response from him. And that response was humility. At the very heart of the response that men must have to God's revelation of Himself is the simple recognition that God is entirely other than we and that He is entirely greater than we. God declared through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is holy, and we and ourselves are not. God is righteous, and we are not. 
God is just, and we are not. And it is because of those infinite distinctions that there will inevitably be things that God does toward men that you and I can never do toward one another. We must obey God's instructions regarding how His character is to be manifested in our actions toward each other. But at the same time, we must recognize humbly that if we ever impose upon God our conceptions of holiness, righteousness, or justice, we will be putting ourselves in His place. And fortunately, fortunately, He will never give up His seat. (laughs) On the plus side of all this discussion about the absolute sovereignty of God is that if we really humble ourselves to hear it, it gives us great, great encouragement as believers in Jesus Christ. No matter how things may appear from our perspective, the God we worship will never do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. We have that as a guarantee. All that He does is perfect. And for us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, the knowledge that our salvation is entirely His doing (laughs) should be of great consolation indeed. Brothers and sisters, if becoming a child of God is based on your choices, then staying a child of God is based on your choices. And I don't think you want to be there. Fortunately, both of those things proceed from God's purpose according to His choice alone. And so, we can declare with Paul what he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. By His doing, you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Dear Father, what we've seen in your word this morning speaks of your absolute sovereignty even over our eternal destiny. Your word calls us to humble ourselves, to accept things that we cannot possibly understand about your dealings with men from our sinful perspective. And it calls us to rest in the knowledge that you will never do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. We ask you, Father, to work into our hearts that humility. And that in it, we would find great peace and rest. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. And for his sake, amen.